0: Father, the reason we gather together and worship is because You have died for us in Your Son, Christ. And Lord, we give Him all the glory. We praise You. We thank You for Your Spirit that moves us to understand and to apply Your Word. We pray, Lord, that's what would happen today as we study Your Word and not only sing it, but focus our attention on understanding it and obeying it. Help us do this, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is a huge blessing to be back with you and to finish our study of this little book, Jonah. If you would, open your Bibles to Jonah, chapter 4. Turn there with me if you would. We're going to look at this, the final chapter, Next week, we're going to stay on our rhythm, and that is that Spencer would preach once a month, so he'll preach next week. And then the following week, I'm excited to begin uh, the first book that Peter wrote, the first letter of Peter, 1 Peter, and we'll jump right in in that week, and I'm excited about that. This week, I was reading an article that was reviewing a book it's about to come out. It's a book about the Bible, not written by a Christian, but written by an unbeliever. And his base idea was to ask the question, why is the Bible so popular? Why has the Bible endured for all the years, and why is the Bible, by multiples, the best-selling book of all time? His conclusion was that the Bible was popular because everyone likes an underdog, and especially the Old Testament, the people are underdogs. It's kind of like enjoying being a fan of the Cleveland Browns or the Detroit Lions. I'm sorry, Robinsons. Never win much. Seem to have some minor victories, do good, perhaps make the playoffs, but never do that great. The author said this is really the reason why this story has endured and why so many people love the Bible and find it so captivating. It's a story of the underdog, especially when it comes to the Old Testament. The problem with this thesis is that it's plainly wrong. If you read the Bible, it's not about a group of people who were just the underdogs. Oh, sure, they were oppressed at times and beaten down at times and persecuted unjustly. But most of the time, if you read the Old Testament in particular, most of the time the people of God are in a bad situation of their own doing. They've failed their sinful, they're obdurate, they're rebellious and stupid, even pagan at times. In fact, whatever struggles they have seem to be because they brought it upon themselves. They rarely do what's right. God saves them, He blesses them, He brings them, sets them back up on solid ground, restores the land and the fortunes they had before, only to find out pretty soon they turn back away from the glory of God's great name. God tells them over and over, I'm not doing this and saving you and blessing you because of your greatness, because you are good or you're genetically superior in any way. I'm doing it for my great name, to demonstrate my great name among the nations. But they seem to turn back over and over and rebel against God again and again. Well, part of that covenant that God, that agreement that God made with the people of Israel is that they would be light, quote, light among the nations, And of course, when they turned away from God and when they turned away from the covenant, they failed to be light among the nations, even though it was embedded in the original covenant from the very beginning when God spoke to Abraham and told him that his offspring would become a great nation, and that nation would bless all the nations of the world 2 Chronicles 16.23 says they should, quote, "...show forth from day to day His salvation, declare His glory among the heathen, His marvelous works among all nations." David saying that if this is his duty, and every follower of Yahweh has a duty to declare and give thanks to God before, quote, "...the heathen nations and praise Him among these nations." Well, what's going on in the time of Jonah? It actually was a good time to be a Jew in that era, the middle of the 700s. There was a level of prosperity. There was a level of joy there. It was a good time. It was peaceful. For a number of years there, in that middle of that century, there was no war, so they could finally focus on their own lives, on settling and getting their lives put together, getting their farms built up, their houses built the way they wanted it. So for a couple generations, they finally could focus on their crops and their trade and their business and their family and establish their land. There was no burdensome tax that they had to pay to some foreign government. It was a good time to be a Jew in the time of Jonah because God and His gracious providence had spared them, their precious country, from oppression and any number of societies and nations around them that were making imperialist moves for the reason simply of God's providence. They weren't making moves at that time during, uh, against Israel. God had mercy on the people of Israel by sparing them from the terrible bondage and weakening probably their most obvious enemies, that would be the Assyrians, these evil anti-Semites who lived really as their next-door neighbor, In His kind and gracious mercy, God weakened that nation, the nation of Assyria, to the point where they were not a threat in the time of Jonah. Now, don't get me wrong, things weren't perfect in that time. King Jeroboam, for one, was an open idolater. Their their, their king was an open idolater. He worshipped Baal and other gods. Moreover, though the Assyrians were not a threat at that moment, they knew at any moment they could march down and decide they want to take over one of the... Jewish cities. They were constantly speaking threats, and we would find out that they were good with their mouths. They loved to attack people and threaten people, enslave other people. Yet overall, it was a good time. In fact, because of God's graciousness to them, the borders of Israel had expanded as near as no, makes no difference back to where they were in the time of the great Davidic and Solomonic kingdoms. God had spoken through Elijah and Elisha, and now there were other faithful prophets, and there was one prophet who actually encouraged these establishment of boundaries, and it was a guy by the name of Jonah. God had used Jonah to speak to the king. God had used Jonah to bring conviction to the people to reestablish what God had initially given them some thousand years or more before. So it was a good time to be a Jew. In spite of the threats, in spite of the sin, God had blessed them beyond measure. Yet there was some sin that was rampant among the people. And this core sin manifests itself in different ways. One evidence of this sin, one evidence of this failure was their open animosity towards other people, other nations. I suppose you could call it racism, but they would have been very similar-looking as the people of these other nations. It wasn't a physical aspect that they would have been racial about. No, it was more of a mentality that simply dispelled any kind of positive thought against anyone around them. They despised all other people around them. They believed that God had blessed them and no others, and, and those others were simply objects of God's wrath and should be punished. The people of God forgot that God told them over and over that He had chosen them not because of their greatness, but because of their weakness and their insignificance. And they began to take pride as though they had done something to earn or deserve the salvation that God had provided. So, it was similar to racism in that they believed themselves to be superior. It probably was dissimilar into the you think about racism today, they perceived they deserved rewards from the Almighty. Indeed, they had forgotten that they were supposed to demonstrate God's love and kindness and grace to all the nations. They were to be a demonstration that God is kind and loving. Instead, they held malice and spite and really anger against the nations around them, particularly the more aggressive ones like Assyria. Now, one of the reasons they did this is because the Assyrians, among others, but the Assyrians mainly, threatened their way of life. Right? They, they had grown comfortable. They had grown comfortable in pursuing an ease of life. Their houses were growing, their land was growing, the money was flowing in, there was a peace about it, and and there was this one problem, this one nationality, this this group that was right there, the Assyrians. And so you could say the other sin that really plagued them was the sin of selfishness. They just wanted a life of ease. They just wanted a life of prosperity. They, They organized everything they did around gaining and gaining and getting richer and more wealthy and having more, and they were angry at any kind of group that might threaten that, namely the Assyrians. And so both of these sins, anger and malice towards others, the sin of selfishness, living their lives to personal ease and personal prosperity, these sins are what defined the people of Israel in Jonah's day. So God did what He often did. He sent the people a prophet. Now normally when God sent a prophet, it was to call that prophet to preach against the people, and that indeed was what prophets did. In fact, Jonah had done some of it to great renown at this point. He had preached against them. He had encouraged them to do what's right and to turn back away from what was wrong and to reestablish the boundaries. And that is what God normally did with prophets. He'd bring them out. you think of Isaiah? You think of Jeremiah, other prophets from that era, a couple of hundred years there, God would bring these prophets and they would preach to the people, against the people, perhaps in the temple, perhaps around the country. He would go around and preach. But God did something different with Jonah. God sent this man, this prophet Jonah, and what Jonah would do is instead of preaching against them, Jonah would act out their sinfulness Unwittingly. He didn't know he was going to do this. He didn't know that that's what God's purpose was, was to give the people a mirror in which to look and see themselves and their sin. He just simply got the call from God to go and preach to Nineveh. Jonah unwittingly would become a display of their silly Sinfulness. It's almost like reading a graphic novel. We've gone through Jonah already. You, you can almost see in your mind's eye as you read Jonah what was happening. I've never read a graphic novel. I know some of you are into these kind of things, but you can see a graphic novel as you read through this, and you can see all the action. There's all this thing, and it's, and it's almost in a cartoon. This, this whole story is almost a joke, and that's indeed what it's supposed to be. Because Jonah, like the people of Israel, was a joke. He was sinning, He was sinful. He was arrogant. He was proud. He was selfish. He was comfortable. He didn't want anything to disrupt that comfort. And the biggest threat to that were a people in Nineveh, the Assyrians. So Jonah was chosen by God to unwittingly give an exaggerated picture of what the people of Israel were like. They would watch Jonah. They would eventually, hopefully, read the story of Jonah and they would realize they're looking into a mirror. They are selfish. They are angry with other nationalities. They were greedy. They were self-seeking. They were angry that God would bless anybody but themselves. They were immature and pouting against other nations. And Jonah would demonstrate this in his ministry. So he gave this to Jonah. Jonah, as you know, we've gone through the story already. Jonah was supposed to go north and inland eastward to a city of Nineveh and preach the gospel or preach the message of Yahweh. And uh, Jonah did the opposite. He ran away. He wanted a life of ease. He wanted away from God's command. He wanted away from the covenant of God that he was supposed to declare his glory among the nations. No, he wanted away from that. He wanted to have a life of ease. He may have thought to himself, I'm, I'm supposed to be in retirement now. God is telling me to do something. I think I'm just going to go retire in Spain. That's possibly where Tarshish was. So he got on a boat, and you know the story. There was a great storm. They cast him into the sea. End of chapter 1, he's swallowed by a great fish. Chapter 2, he's in that fish, dying. He repents. At least it appears he repents. We know it doesn't stick. But repentant, he spat back up on the shore, he dusts himself off, he goes into Nineveh, he preaches the message of Yahweh, and a massive revival occurred, a massive awakening. They repented, they turned to this God. This is absolutely amazing. If you think about it, this is every pastor, preacher, prophets, apostles' dream, that everybody to whom you preach listens and obeys. That's what they did. They listened to his message, and they did what he said. They humbled themselves before Almighty God. They were broken. They put sackcloth and ashes on, meaning they they were broken for their sin. They turned to Yahweh, feared Yahweh, believing they would deserve any judgment he brought upon them. And, of course, he saves them and relents of his judgment. So you'd think, because this is every pastor's dream, you'd think that at this point... Jonah would have realized the truth about himself. Jonah would have said, indeed, God, you're righteous, you're good. And Jonah would have been broken, realizing his own heart. But no, Jonah is picturing the people of Israel. He's picturing the silly, selfish, angry life that they lead. And so what does Jonah do? He gets angry. That's chapter 4. And we're going to read chapter 4 and talk about the absurd and senseless sins that plagued Jonah and the other Israelites in that day, and we're going to apply them to our own hearts, look into our own souls, and make application. All right, let's read this. It's only 11 verses. Follow along. Jonah chapter 4. But it, speaking of the great revival, "'But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And then he prayed to the Lord and said, "'O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country?' That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it, in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. And the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. Must have been a bald guy. He asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And I should not pity Nineveh, and should I not pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Now, I want to shape this chapter in your mind based upon a little bit of the conversation that Jonah and God have there. Twice, it says Jonah was angry, and twice God responded, essentially, it's ridiculous that you're angry. Now, the ESV translation translates it word for word, and we have a question, do you do well to be angry? And of course, the implied answer, it's a rhetorical question, the implied answer is, no, he does not do well. It's ridiculous that he would be angry. And those two outbursts and those two responses of God really, in my mind anyway, make me aware of these overlapping sins, the sin of malice and anger and the sin of selfishness. These sins that had shaped their lives around personal profit and anger at anybody who would block that goal. And we're left at the end of this book. It's the strangest ending of any book in the Bible. We're left at the end, sort of this piercing logic of God, which annihilates and demonstrates our utter folly and anger and selfishness. It just sort of leaves it dangling. A question, maybe. The readers are intended to answer for themselves about our own anger, about our own selfishness. So today, two points. Maybe you want to write these down. Number one, the absurdity of anger. The absurdity of anger. I want to talk about anger just for a few moments. Anger can be defined as an emotional outburst when your goals are blocked. It can be defined as emotional rage when what one wants is deterred. It is a sudden eruption of frustration, and a person doesn't get what they want. And when it comes to anger and Christians, almost immediately, maybe even in your own mind, almost immediately people begin to repeat Ephesians 4:26, be angry and sin not, as if to justify the anger they have. And people think that maybe there's an excuse here. Maybe there's a way that I can be angry and have outburst and be angry and not sin. As long as it's for a just reason. If, for instance, I look around the world and see all the injustice... And I shake my fists and I grip my teeth and see what they're doing on Capitol Hill and see what this group of people are doing or that group of people or hear about these doctors or politicians who don't mind killing babies or hear about these people who want to force children into psychosis where they would have their bodies changed. I'm angry about these things and can not I be justified in my anger about these things? These doctors and politicians make money off these things, off the destruction of children. Is it something we should be angry about? Isn't it righteousness? Isn't that righteousness and justice that we're angry about? The problem with that thinking is that immediately in that verse, there in Ephesians 4, Paul says right after, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. So clearly he's not saying, folks, here's a way you can be angry without sin. What he's saying is, here's how you repent of anger. You don't let it fester. You release it. You drive it out of your life before even the sun goes down in the evening. What you find out is the description of God's anger is vastly different than human anger. God's anger is not simply an emotional rage. It's not an out-of-control fury, an outburst. Some commentators point out that in the Greek language there were a number of different words for anger, and indeed, most of the time when it talks about God's anger, it is not talking about an outburst. It's talking about a settled, determined justice. Whereas when it talks about human anger, it always talks about an outburst. James, in the book of James it says, the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. So our anger is always impure, it's always mingled with sin, it's always mingled with personal desires, personal goals, a way of life, things that you want, perhaps it is in your family or in your personal life or at work, or maybe it's in broader, in your city, in your community, in your country, you want it a certain way and you're angry that it's not that way. By the way, don't believe that lie, that old pop psychology lie that says, well, I need to blow up once in a while or else I'll just boil over. I can't just put away. I've got to have an explosion of anger once in a while to make me less angry. That's like saying, well, you know, I kind of have the impulse of stealing, so if I just steal once in a while, it will sort of help me not steal as much. Or uh, I have the impulse to to cheat on my wife, so maybe if I just do it once in a while, it'll help me No, It'll just make it worse. You'll sin more. You'll become a more angry person if you have outbursts. No, you put those sins away. I think this gets at the whole issue in Israel. They were angry. They were frustrated at the nations around them. Ultimately, they were angry with God, that God would allow those nations to exist and not destroy them. Why? Because they were selfish, their goals were being blocked, their desires for their own dominance, their own world-renowned... These things were being blocked. Primarily in, this, in that day and age by Assyria. That was their sin. They were angry that they even existed. It looked at a city like Nineveh. These anti-Semites all grouped together, hating and hateful and despising the Jewish people, and they just thought God needs to just strike them all dead immediately. And So they were angry that God hadn't done that. This anger was full of sin. Maybe there was some level of justice there, but it was full of their own sin and their pride. And it's just like our anger. Our anger is always mingled with sin. Our our anger is always mingled with some sort of unrighteousness, our desires being blocked. I realized as I get older that mentality, just sort of a constant frustration with other humans, this is a real battle. I think especially as you get older, the grumpy old man syndrome is a real thing. <laughs> Ask my kids. You have to fight this anger as you get older. Every turn, there are people. These people sometimes are supposed to help you. They work at the DMV, or they work at school, or they're a coworker, or they're supposed to do certain... In fact, they're trained and paid to do certain things to help you, and it became your biggest, biggest obstacle to getting done what you want to get done. Deal with a waiter or a service manager or a bureaucrat. These are the ones who are supposed to help you. Maybe you can think of people in your own life. Maybe it's someone at work, or it is some bureaucrat or some new doctor. Or maybe you left your, right, your phone on a ride at Six Flags, and that phone... You can see it on the tracker going round and round six flags. And so you want to go back and get it. They won't let you. Some pimple-faced kid won't let you just go get it. And so they tell you you got to go down to the guest services and you got to fill out a report. And they're not going to look for it until midnight. And you watch for two days as your phone goes round and round and round until finally it dies and you have to buy a new phone. It never happened to me. It's just an example of something that may have happened to you. (laughs) Your goals are blocked. And you give in to that impatience and you get more and more frustrated in life if these young'uns would just know how much better it used to be, how hard-working everybody used to be, how kind and gracious. And let me just say, I think a lot of times we look back in our life, especially when we felt better, had better health, we look back and we sort of look back and with rose-tinted glasses, right? Everything was much better because we felt much better, we looked much better, we didn't deal with hard issues like we do now, and so we kind of interpret our own history as being better. But we get frustrated. And sometimes we get frustrated with not just a person or an individual, sometimes it becomes a whole swath of individuals, teenagers, or people who work in bureaucracies, or Congress, Democrats, Republicans. We get angry with whole groups of people. Maybe it is ethnicities. Whole groups of people, we categorize them. We stereotype them not in a fun, sort of happy way. We stereotype them in a negative way. This happens even in warfare. I talk to sailors sometimes, and they, they struggle with animosity towards races of people. And you have to remind them, you're no different than the guy who's fighting against you. They're just doing what you're told. He's just doing what he's been told. There's no reason to be angry. But this is what was happening in Israel. These people are wicked. They're growing more and more frustrated and angry with all the people around them, especially the Assyrians. And Jonah was to be a demonstration of this silly, absurd anger. He needed the grace and mercy of God. He just didn't want anybody else to experience it. Look at verse 1. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. Verse 1. Verse 2. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, For I knew that you're a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. Jonah is silly. He's a fool. First of all, because he knows of God's mercy toward him. He says it right there. I knew that you're gracious God and merciful. How would Jonah know that? Because Jonah needed that. Jonah had experienced that. Jonah deserved God's wrath. And Jonah needed a merciful God. He relied on the fact that God is kind and loving and merciful. He relied on that. To how foolish it is for him to look at someone else who just needs the same thing he got... And be angry that God would give it to them. Look how depressed and dark he gets. Verse 3 Take my life, it's better for me to die than to live. We're supposed to read this and see how stupid he looks, how silly this man looks. And then we're supposed to apply it, which means to apply it to your own anger. You never have reason to be angry. Of all the people in the world, Christians should be the least angry. We should understand this grand situation, this whole sovereign situation, that any kind of kindness or grace or goodness that has come to you, it's not because of you, not because you're better than anyone else. It's simply because of God's mercy and kindness. God must have mercy on us. So to be angry at others for even their sin against you, it's absurd. It's ludicrous. That's why Jesus said, if you can't forgive others, there's a question whether or not you've even been forgiven. How can you say, I won't forgive someone else if you know you've been forgiven? I feel like maybe we ought to pause for a moment and let you think of people. Maybe it's individuals, maybe it's whole swaths of people. Just release them from the prison of your mind. You know, there are some people who um, would argue that the word forgiveness can only be applied to what I might call full-orbed forgiveness, where there is repentance and reconciliation, and that's the only place, that's the only context that you can use the word forgive. Uh, I don't think that bears the truth, the scrutiny of Scripture. In fact, I think that's what Jesus was doing on the cross. He said, forgive them. They know not what they do. So I do believe there's another way in which we can use the word forgive, and that is to prepare our hearts to love and to release them. Maybe they would never come to you, and so that full-orbed forgiveness may not be realized. But at least in an initial way, you can forgive them in your heart. You can say, I'm not going to hold this person hostage in my heart. I'm not going to be angry at this group of people or that group of people. I'm not going to constantly pour fuel on the fire by watching the news. That just makes me more angry and more frustrated and more enraged. I'm not going to gossip about this to other people, about what some other person did to me. That just makes me more angry. I'm not going to explode. I'm going to do whatever I can to release this person and not be angry, even if they never come to me and we never realize that full sense of, Forgiveness and reconciliation, I do want to forgive them in my heart. The thing that will help you in that context is to realize the same thing that Jonah says here, your own need of God's mercy and kindness. Offer them what God has given so freely to you. Realize the absurdity of anger. Number two, the senselessness of selfishness. That next section, beginning in verse 5, Jonah goes out of the city. He made a booth for himself. He sat under it in the shade till he would see what would become of the city. That little booth the next day was withered. God had appointed a worm, it says. Verse 7. God also appointed a scorching wind that blew that thing away and Jonah was faint. God says, how in the world can you have mercy on yourself, on your own heart, on your own this plant that's protecting you and not pity Nineveh where there's at least 120,000 people Now, I think as we look at this, I think probably there was some sort of vine there before. I don't think think that verse uh, 10 uh, means that there was nothing there and Jonah just planted a random shelter and God had some kind of miraculous plant plant grow. I believe it was there, at least in part, because Jonah, it says he sat in the shade and God uh, rose it up. So I think initially there was something there. That's why Jonah built the shelter there. The shade, it cooled him, I think, figuratively and literally. Maybe Jonah got in that position to look over the city to see, maybe he imagined, maybe he dreamed in his anger ideas of Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe he thought, hey, I'm going to get to see a whole city turn into salt. He got up there and observed, let me see what happens. Let me see whether or not, in the end, God is going to be merciful Jonah woke up, and my guess is that he was instantly aware of a hot, scorching sun and wind coming from the east, the desert, where the desert was. He looked and he saw leaves that were part of that vine had fallen over, and I assume he saw a little worm there had been gnawing on the base of that vine. And Jonah, the silly, pouting prophet, so angry, so obtuse, missed the whole point Life was all about himself, his own comfort. Life was all about building his own barns, about being comfortable and living a life of ease. And he was angry again, angry to the point of death. They would not have some shade. Just kill me, he prays. And so God pointed out another aspect of these interwoven sins, the selfishness. You received kindness from me, and from me. You didn't work for it. You didn't earn it. You received grace from me. You received shade and comfort and relief. Even that little vine had my mercy and grace upon it for your life and for your blessing, and yet you think it's all about you and all about your own comfort, and you want me to withhold any kind of mercy to that entire city." Now, this is just conjecture on my part, but I believe the book of Jonah was written by Jonah himself. I have no evidence of this, but I think it's similar to the book of Ecclesiastes and Solomon. I believe this is a book of repentance. I believe Jonah wrote this out of repentance. I think Jonah realized his absurd life, his sinful anger, his selfishness, and he realized that he was a demonstration of the people of Israel. I don't know if he did this at moments after this happened or if he did it years after, But my guess is he realized it at some point and realized that he was a demonstration of the sin of Israel. Only Israel at this point had not yet repented. So instead of recording his turn back to God, instead of recording his his repentance and turn back to the Lord, he leaves it dangling. Isn't your anger, your selfish life, your life that's consumed with your own goals being blocked, isn't it utterly senseless and absurd? Isn't your demand for mercy and the idea that we shouldn't have mercies on, mercy on others, isn't that the pinnacle of a selfish life? Indeed it is. And whether Jonah wrote it or not as a matter of repentance, we don't know. But the people of Israel did codify it as being God's Word, they recognize it as what it really is, God's Word. And like every book, every paragraph, every page, every sentence, every word in the Bible, it is piercing. Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. This pierces us. This causes us to look at our own love for God's glory, God's majesty, God's mercy and kindness being revealed to the nations or whether or not we're interested in god's mercy and kindness only if it applies to us what the book of jonah does is it makes us realize our own selfish angry lives our contempt of others is not just some little peccadillo some little mild white sin it's some it's something that's major we should nip it in the bud it's something that would go on to destroy the nation of Israel. I mentioned Jesus' words, Matthew six fourteen 14 to 15, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you also. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will you, your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus is not telling us this is the message of salvation, the way you're saved is by forgiving others. What he's saying is if you can't forgive others, it's obvious you've never truly received the forgiveness and understand the forgiveness of God. God has forgiven you so much more than you'll ever in a lifetime forgive of other people. That even means if you've been abused, if you've been hurt very deeply by others, God forgave you more. You ever thought about this? Who is the worst sinner you know? Yourself. You know every little lie every little dirty thought, you know every little thing. There's no one with more sin that you know than yourself. And what a joy it is to know that God will forgive all those sins. And how can you hold over people's head little things they do to you, words they say, things they've done? How can you hold these over their head? No, you forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We pray this Our ability to forgive, even in that rudimentary sense, even if it's not that full orbed forgiveness like I talked about in reconciliation, our ability to forgive is tied to the message of God, ultimately to the message of the gospel. It's our knowledge and gratitude of God's forgiveness and mercy on us. Our prayer is that we become so mindful and enamored with God's kindness to us. It's second nature for us to forgive others. So Let's pray that God would grant us that grace. Father, we do... Admit, there are many people and many situations where we do not show grace and forgiveness. When we're angry with others, sometimes we seem to think we know everything about their lives, why they've done what they've done, who they are. And your Lord, yet where if we look in the mirror, we see ourselves so full of sin, constantly battling sin... Constantly relying on your grace, your kindness, and your mercy toward us. So help us abandon the sins of selfishness and anger. Help us be a kind, forgiving people. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, stand with me, and I'll read a benediction. by Isaiah, Isaiah 40. May we go now, having heard, seen, and beheld from the beginning God's great love and mercy for us. And may we spread that love to all.